You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Andrew, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning once again. Welcome to Grace Community Church. Thank you so much for being here uh, this morning. Next Sunday is potluck day. So we will surely have trouble thinking about the sermon next Sunday with all the good aromas wafting in here. Uh, hopefully, we won't have trouble today thinking about it, but I hope you will prepare a lot of food for next Sunday. We anticipate uh, the place being very full and a whole lot of food, and if it's not so full, that's more food for us to take home, you know, so... Lots of deviled eggs, homemade banana pudding, all that kind of stuff next Sunday. Look forward to it. Well, uh, this is a happy day for some of you, and it's a sad day for others of you. Some of you uh, sadly took your children anywhere from 45 minutes to three hours away and left them at school. And so you're really sad thinking about missing your child. Now, some of you may actually be quite happy to have done that yesterday for the first time. Maybe some of you are for the first time in your lives empty nesters, but you, you, you took the kids to school, and there's a sadness on this day, especially as you think about tuition costs. For others of you, it's a happy day. Your parents dropped you off at Campbell University, and you have a freedom you have never known in your entire life. It is time to live life like you were prepared to do. Maybe you're a bit fearful, uh, but you're excited and happy, especially if your parents told you that they are going to worry about tuition costs. Now, if they said, have you ever heard of financial aid? as in taking loans out, maybe you've got a little to worry about too. But still, it's freedom that you have never previously enjoyed. So, happy day. Regardless of whether you've been coming to Grace for over 20 years, or if you just heard about Grace this morning, we're glad that you're here. You may have discerned from the PowerPoint that the message is going to be from the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah. You would be correct in that assumption. And in fact, if you assume that perhaps we're in a series in the book of Isaiah, you would also be correct. Now, I just want to encourage you, do not be intimidated when I tell you that we are in chapter 43 of 66 books uh, or 66 chapters in this Old Testament book. A lot of people think of Isaiah as almost a New Testament book uh, because of the descriptions that it has of some of the beautiful <clears throat> mysteries of Christ, even though Jesus wouldn't be born some 700 years after Isaiah wrote. Uh, we began this series in February, but we're at a point now where the pace should quicken and we'll move a little more quickly at this part of the book. Although, well, that's the plan. You never know how that goes. But, but we will we'll definitely slow down when we get close to Isaiah 53 uh, because of the, um, it's one of the most important texts in all of Scripture to help us understand the purpose and effect of Jesus' crucifixion. 
amazing how much truth about what Jesus did for us on the cross was already written <clears throat> those 700 years before he was even born. Um, we're going to start back in Isaiah in a few weeks. Next week, we're going to take a one-week break, uh, and I'm going to be talking uh, about a struggle that many of us have with fears and ways that God has designed for us to face our fears in the power of the Spirit. But today's text is Isaiah 43. There are two words, whenever I hear them, it just calls... It, these two words cause my spiritual, spiritual antenna to go up very quickly. They've been said for a long time, and they've been associated always with words that follow these two words, <clears throat> though it's different now uh, than, than it was in my childhood when these two words were used. Here are the two words. You deserve. Now, when I was a child, usually bad news followed those words. You deserve a whooping, boy. And then I'd hear that dreaded sound of my dad's belt coming through. <clears throat> and you think, some of you think, abuse, abuse. Well, you, you didn't live in that day. Uh, everybody did it. So, or they would say, you deserve to fail this test. With a lack of study that has been very evident, you deserve to fail that test. But then, I was in the 60s. Then in 1971, McDonald's began an ingenious 10 years, a little more than 10-year advertising campaign that used these words in a different way. A lot of you remember it, don't you? You deserve a break today. So get up and get away to McDonald's. As you know by now, almost every company in existence has stolen that ad campaign, and I'm sure McDonald's got it from somewhere. Uh, but today you're more likely to hear a campaign that says, you deserve a healthy body, so quit going to McDonald's. But whatever it is they're selling, you deserve it, right? I never knew until I was told that I deserve, I deserve a good night's sleep, or a better television, or a jacuzzi on the back deck. No, wait a minute. We don't have a back deck, but, but I think we deserve one, don't you, honey? I mean, so we can put the jacuzzi that we deserve on the back deck. <laughs> what do we deserve, really? What, what do we deserve? Not nearly as much good as we are told that we deserve. Some of us think that we deserve good things because we've earned them by our hard work or by our good works. Or we deserve good things because we've had a hard life. When we read scripture, though, with a sincere heart seeking to hear from God rather than making scripture conform to what we already believe, we're confronted with the reality that any goodness in our lives is the result of God's grace and mercy and love for his people. Isaiah 43 was written by the prophet Isaiah, but it was written for people in, in about 700 B.C., somewhere along in there, before and after he was writing all along through there. But, but it was written for people who would live 100 years in the future, and these people would be living in Babylon, having, been, having had their home city, Jerusalem, destroyed and the people deported to Babylon because of their sins. 
It would happen because those living as God's covenant people worshipped idols instead of the one true living God who had called them to be in his family. And they trusted man rather than God in their moments of trial. But God would tell them in the latter portion of Isaiah, I love you anyway, and I will be with you even in a trial that is the result of your own sin. If you have asked God to forgive your sins and you've trusted Jesus' death on the cross as a sacrifice for your sins, then these words will have great meaning to you. Isaiah 43, was it written to us or was it written to... This was written to you, but it might not have quite the same meaning that you would hope that it has. Uh, let's get to our text, Isaiah 43. I'll be reading the first seven verses of this chapter, but then drawing application from the whole chapter. It's our custom uh, when, we, when the scripture is read here at Grace to Stand, so if you would... Please stand for the reading of Scripture, Isaiah 43, <clears throat> verses 1 through 7. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters... I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, or when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring <clears throat> from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, <coughs> whom I formed and made. Let's pray. Father, These are encouraging words. They were written in circumstances that were less than encouraging. <clears throat> and Lord, for many of us, we, we go through times that make no sense whatsoever. And our hearts ache and cry out of loneliness and, and confusion. But Lord, on this day, may you be exalted to your rightful place, not only in the universe as you already are, <clears throat> but in our minds. May you be exalted in the right, your rightful place and in our hearts as we seek you. Uh, give us the truth of your word 
through the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the power of Jesus' sacrifice, and according to your plan, Father, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, B.C. Well, when there's a lot of ground to cover in a sermon, um, <clears throat> as, as it, it is in a long chapter, then it often seems best to summarize several points of truth and application that are found in the text. And there are five today. Uh, so we're going to begin with this. God's creative and redemptive role in our lives places him in a position of authority that is beyond challenge. <clears throat> in Isaiah 43.1, the doctrine of creation is not the primary emphasis, but, but of course, uh, there is no way you can miss Isaiah's reflection on Genesis 1 and 2 as he's talking with his people. But thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. And then verse 1 is followed by many beautiful promises to the Jews, to God's people, who would find themselves in a foreign land under the rule of a godless uh, leader and people. In lieu of spending time this morning introducing uh, the book of Isaiah to those of you who, who are new, I thought I would sprinkle uh, introductory uh, words and thoughts along the way in the sermon. I'll, I'll have one more introduction uh, the Sunday after Labor Day when everybody's back from uh, being away and we're all here and there'll be several new folks for the study in Isaiah and we'll talk about it a little bit more there. This morning, though, just here and there, one of the features uh, of Isaiah's writing is that he moves quickly from judgment to blessing and then back and forth again. And, and, and there are often connecting themes in between judgment and blessing. <clears throat> but reading an individual chapter from Isaiah without context can produce something akin to, to whiplash. I mean, you feel like, whew, whew, what is it? Where? where Wait a minute, he's saying that, and now he's saying this. The best way to read Isaiah is, frankly, in very few sittings. If you could just take like an hour a day until you get through <coughs> the book of Isaiah, that would be the way to read it, and you'll begin to understand the way God is moving in the book and the themes, how they, they go back and forth. But look, isn't that what life is like for us? I mean, you think it's good today, and it is, but tomorrow, boy, everything falls out. The rug is pulled out from under you, and then there's blessing when you don't expect it all over the place. So even though it's good to read Isaiah like that all the way through if you are able, there is great benefit in slowing down to seek understanding of God's word to his people. When God reminded the people of Judah that he had created them, they knew Genesis 1 and 2 very well, of course. Uh, so they would have to know that God was the creator of all peoples on the earth. Do you believe this? Do you believe that every living thing, both seen and unseen, has been created by the one true God? If we believe that he is our creator, we should hesitate before we accuse or question God. Now look, people say God won't give you more than you, you can handle. No, if there's anything we know about God is that he absolutely will give us more than we can handle. And 
call us at the same time to trust him and to to recognize that he is the sovereign God of the universe and that he loves us in his heart. Our hearts are in his hand, that he cares for us. Um, but, and it's likely that at some point, all of us are going to be like Job. What's up with this? How can this be true? Look, the thing about Job is you can question God like that, but put your big boy or big girl britches on when you do, because God's going to, you know, have something to say to him. And if we recognize that he is the creator of all the universe, it helps us to just rest and to trust that he knows what he's doing. And it's good to be reminded that he is God and we are not. And it's one of the things that he was telling these Israelites who would be in captivity some 100 years later. It's also true that God is the redeemer of his people, which implies that we need to be rescued, that we need to be saved out of trouble and purchased, frankly, out of slavery. We are all slaves to our sin. And when, when the New Testament talks about Jesus being a ransom for many, there's a sense in which he purchased us and we belong to him. He owns us. But this is one of the beautiful things about Isaiah. He's constantly reminding his people whose they are. You belong to me. I love you. You're mine. I'm going to take care of you. But you're going to have to trust me because you're going to wonder sometimes what is up with this. We'll talk more about redemption in the third point, but for now, let this sink into your heart. God created you. And if you are a believer, <clears throat> he has redeemed you. You belong to him. You are blessed to enjoy many of his great gifts to you. But none of us has the right to another day on this earth. You deserve. No, we don't deserve those things. We are blessed with what we have because God chose to enter our lives and to call us to himself. God has the authority to do whatever he will, but he desires for his people to willingly Acknowledge him as creator and redeemer and to trust him and yield to him so that they may receive the full benefit of relationship with him, which flows right into the second point. God's glory is the basis for his goodness and the delight of his people. You may pick with that a little bit theologically, but it's in this text, God says over and over, I do this for my glory. In Isaiah, he says, I don't do it for you. I do it for my glory. But when he does things for his glory, it's really good for us. You deserve, you deserve something good is a lie. You ever thought about how, how the many things that you're told that you, are, that you deserve are said only in the service of the company that's trying to sell you something? Or... Uh, People who, who you can help further his or her political agenda. You deserve to buy my product. Come join in my crusade and we will change the world. 
But we've bought into the lie. We have bought into the notion that life is all about us. In fact, it's all about me. Even in a relationship with God, many would say, of course I'm a Christian. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, God likes me. One of the benefits of reading and understanding the Old Testament is that it helps us to see what a relationship with God would be like apart from Jesus. Look, everything changed with Jesus' death and resurrection and the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. Everything changed. Before that, the law was constantly pointing out our sin and our inability to keep it to be, to make ourselves <clears throat> acceptable to God. It was It was telling the way, and all we could see was failure, failure, failure. Anyone who has been saved, Old Testament or New Testament, has been saved, not by keeping the law, but by believing the promises of God. It's just that for the last 2,000 years, Jesus is the promise of God. Isaiah Reminds us that God does everything for his own glory. And that is a good thing. Verses 6 and 7 say. Bring my sons from afar. And my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name. Whom I created for my glory. Whom I formed and made. John Piper talks about God doing all things. And delighting in his own glory. And how... When you first realize that this is what the scripture teaches, it's like being hit with a truck. But then once you've absorbed the blow, you realize it is laden with the most delicious fruit imaginable. When you accept that God does things for his glory, and when we glorify him, everything about life and our perspective about life changes. In verse 25, God tells his people, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I I blot out your transgressions for, for my sake, but I will not remember your sins. That's a great promise. God's glory is the basis for his goodness and the basis of his people's delight A thought that is continued in the next point. God will go to any lengths to save his people. The danger in knowing scripture is that we easily yield to the temptation and tendency to take many of its truths for granted. What does it mean that God sent his son to die as a sacrifice for our sins? Why did the father remain silent when Jesus prayed in the garden? My father... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Just imagine it. Jesus has prophesied his own death to his disciples. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's in such agony that he sweats blood. And he said, Father, if there's any other way, Let this cup pass from me. And the father remained silent. Why? 
so that you could live with him eternally. Because it was the only way. Why was it the only way? If I were God, I could tell you. But why did God choose this way? I don't know, but it was this way. And the silence of God when Jesus made that request indicates a stunning level of love for his children, for you and for me. Isaiah says what the New Testament says in a different way, but it's the same truth. God will go to any lengths to save, to redeem his people. <clears throat> Isaiah puts God's love for us in startling terms in Isaiah 43, 3 and 4. <clears throat> for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you. Peoples in exchange for your life. This reads like God chose Israel over Egypt. Now, we don't typically think like this. When we're hearing the story, we're, <clears throat> we're identifying it. <clears throat> as we should with the people of Israel who are in slavery and the Egyptians are oppressing them and, <coughs> and, and treating them in awful ways. God sends Moses. They come out after all the plagues. But think about it. God loved Israel to the point that the firstborn of every living thing in Egypt would die. He loved Israel so much that he drowned the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Why? Was it because Israel was so great and Egypt was so awful? No. Who are you, God says to Israel? You were nobody. I just chose you. Picked you up out of a pagan worship like a baby that was left on the side of the road. I chose you. I loved you. I took care of you. When you read that Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Do you focus on the question of whether or not we have a say in our salvation? Or, or is your focus, as it was intended, on the blessing that God chose you to be in his family? What great lengths the Father has gone to bring you into his family. I don't know what to do with these verses. I just know this, they're there. And I give peoples in exchange for your life. There is more good news about God's love for us. Fourth, God's presence will sustain us in the most severe trials. In spite of our tendency to turn away from him. In Isaiah 43, God is going back and forth with the people who will live some 100 years later. They wanted to argue that God had no right to send them into captivity. You ever said something like that? God, what, 
What's, what, do you, what right do you have to do this to me? Haven't I done this, this, and this? And then you allow that to happen? How can that possibly be? All of us have been there or will be there. We all recognize it. And God very gently brings us perspective through his word primarily and through the community, the, the body of Christ. <clears throat> Time and again in Isaiah, God had reminded the people of their propensity to go after false idols and to live in open sin at the very same time they were going into the temple and making sacrifices to Yahweh. Now, it's really, I don't know how we would draw application in our lives because I'm sure none of you really struggle with sin, gave in to sin this past week, gossip, pornography, spending money too much. None of that going on here, so let's just, no, we better stay for just a minute anyway. In Isaiah 43, God challenged his people to make a case for their faithfulness to him, which they couldn't do because even though they were able to deceive others and they were even able to deceive themselves at times, God knows everything about his people, everything. He knows it all. Even though we have a distinct advantage over Old Testament saints with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, our tendency to stray, to walk away from the Holy One who created and redeemed us for His glory is still strong. We turn to idols of our own making, idols we talked about last week, to bring meaning to our lives when we just can't find, we can't make sense of life or we can't find contentment in the Lord. You would think that God would give up on us. Oh, contraire. No, he is not. In fact, he's doing the exact opposite. He is pursuing us, bringing us into his love and care. God reminded his people in Isaiah that he would take care of them because of whose they were. They be you belong to me, God says. And even though you've made a lot of mistakes, I'm not going to let go of you. In Isaiah 43, 1 through 7, God describes the faithfulness of his love, even though his people were being disciplined for their sin. Parents, when you discipline your children, does that mean you don't love them anymore? No. Your heart is very tender toward your child. You want your child to know you love them. Look, we're going to have a parenting class coming up. <clears throat> In a few, uh, starting in September, and I, I hope all of you parents will be there. We just need to learn together, think together about how uh, we can fulfill our responsibility to raise our children in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. One of the things that <clears throat> I remember Mike Calhoun saying was that when he would, and of course, this, this worked back in the day, Mike not work so much today. You could find other ways of... <clears throat> he said, when I, would have, when I would discipline my child, they'd be in the room, they'd be crying. And he said, I would, I would never leave with that being the case, with them seeing me frustrated or upset. He said, I would say something like, um, I bet I can hug you tighter than you can hug me. You know, and like, he says, yeah, I can do it. And, like, and so then they have this big hug, you know. Or... <clears throat> He would say, I can't leave until I find your smiley face. I don't know where it is. 
start looking in drawers and under the bed, and pretty soon you find the smile. There are just ways that you can communicate to your children that you love them in spite of the fact that they've been disciplined and that you want them to learn a lesson. It's exactly what the Lord is doing here. He's saying, I love you no matter what. Uh, remember from last Sunday's message in Isaiah 42, especially in these New Testament days, not all discipline from the Lord is corrective. It's not like you've done something wrong and, he, and you're having to pay for it. He's going to take care of you because of what you've done. But a lot of it is just there to mold us and shape us into the image of Christ, like you must clean up your room before you're able to play, that type of thing. There's so many times that we take verses in Scripture that are written to the church body as a whole, like let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts from Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You is second person plural. It's not as easy in English as it is in other languages. We know that he's talking to everybody. In other words, don't allow disunity to be in your church. And of course, we should individually let peace rule in our hearts. But the primary thing he's saying is, watch, watch out for disunity. Make sure that peace rules in the body of Christ. But here in Isaiah 43 is something that's quite unusual. God is talking to his covenant people, Israel, to the nation. But he uses second person singular, not plural he uses second person singular over and over again. In fact, 26 times in the Hebrew, in these, in these seven verses, he's saying, I will do this. Not saying, I will do this for you, but he's saying, I will do this for you and you and you and you and you. It's a very personal promise that God is making. To those who belong to him. When you read these verses in Isaiah 43, 1 to 7. We're going to look at 1 and 2 in a few minutes. But when you read these verses, you may think God is promising to deliver you from trials. I mean, it says, it, it says look, when you pass through the flames, they won't burn you. Don't, isn't that what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Abednego? Yes, that's exactly what happened. But you know, they didn't interpret that verse that way. They said, God is able to deliver us, O King Nebuchadnezzar. But whether he delivers us or not, we're not bowing down. So they did not assume because of this verse from Isaiah, which they would have definitely known some 100 years later. They did not assume that God would keep them from burning up. But they did know he's able as the God of the universe. So I'm sorry to say that God is not promising that he will deliver you from this trial. Sometimes you lose your job. Sometimes someone you love very dearly doesn't make it. Sometimes a spouse walks away. It's not always going to be answered the way that you think that it will. But he is promising to be with you in the severest of trials. John Calvin said this about the truth in these verses. The Lord has not redeemed you so that you might enjoy pleasures and luxuries. But so that you should be prepared for enduring all kinds of evil. Now that's exactly what you would expect John Calvin to say, right? When you think of the name John Calvin, you just think of this. 
stern. And it really is kind of harsh, isn't it? But it's not really different from what Jesus said. And by the way, John Calvin was a pretty joyful person in spite of some really difficult circumstances. And what you may think to be doctrine that presents God as being just uh, stern and uncaring, it's not so at all. That's not his doctrine. That's not our God. It's true as Jesus told his disciples in John 15, if they hate you, it's because they first hated me. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's a little bit of what's going on when you're trying to witness to somebody and they're saying, you're trying to tell me that here's this wicked person and he trusts Jesus, he's going to heaven, and this good person who lives a good life, all his life he helps other people, is dying and going to hell. A lot of times when you're witnessing to somebody, you may not use the word hell at all, but they bring it up. You say, I'm going to hell? Is that what you're saying? Maybe there's this little tinge of what Jesus said. I chose you out of the world. The world hates you. They hate you for who you belong to. Make certain that you never do anything intentionally. Of course, you're going to inadvertently, but try to never intentionally offend people. If there is offense, let it be the cross. But when you're in the Word and you understand the way God works in the entire world and with His people, when you're frequently in the Word, you will be delivered from a you-deserve deception that will leave you Utterly unprepared for the difficulties that life will throw at you. Especially if you belong to Jesus. Get ready for some hard stuff. Here is God's promise to you in Isaiah 43 verses 1 and 2. But now thus says the Lord. He who created you, O Jacob. He who formed you, O Israel. Fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Mine, you belong to me. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. That's good news, and it leads directly to our last point. Because of God's ever faithful goodness, we are blessed to be his witnesses. Once again, understanding the context of this section in Isaiah helps us understand the exact meaning of the verses that we slow down uh, to examine. <clears throat> Beginning in Isaiah 41, God challenges idols. Literally, they, they, these idols were literal uh, structures of wood and stone. And he says, okay, idols, come into my court and make a case for yourself. Well, the idols, of course, had... Nothing to say. God was judging idol makers and idol worshipers <clears throat> in that courtroom. And he was saying, okay, witnesses, idols, stand up. Make a case. What can you tell me about the future? What can you do about this or that? Can you do anything? And the idol's response was, because what does an idol got to say? Our idols talk back to us, right? But they can't talk to God. 
Now, in Isaiah 43, verses 10 and 11, God calls his children to be witnesses for him. He's already said, idols, let's give a witness. Let's hear what you got to say. Nothing? Okay. Now he turns to his people and he says, you are to be witnesses for me to the ends of the earth. He calls his children to witness for him and witness about his love for his people. We cannot help, when you read verses 10 and 11 of Isaiah 43, you can't help but think of Acts 1-8 where we're called to be witnesses. We're going to read that verse and then we'll go back to Isaiah 43. Acts 1-8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We are blessed as God's children to preach the good news of Jesus. Look, there was a day in our land when you could assume that people had at least a working knowledge of Scripture and what it taught about law and sin and sacrifice. And maybe they were a little confused, but you could say, no, no, let me just make sure you understand the purpose of the law. It's not so that we can make ourselves good enough that God will love us and accept us, but it's to show us our sin and our need for a Savior. And Jesus took the punishment that we deserved upon himself. You could go there, but it's not that way anymore. People don't have a general working knowledge of the Lord. I was at a contemporary Christian music concert recently, and one of the guys who did a few numbers said, look, I don't know scripture all that much. I think there's a verse in there that says, and then he wrote a, he wrote a song about a verse he thought was in the Bible. Um, and he's a contemporary Christian artist. Uh, I found these days that my witness to the lost typically begins with worldview conversations, which hopefully will lead to gospel truth conversations. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11 is a good word for us in our day. You are my witnesses, God says to his people, Judah and Israel. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. As we acknowledged last week, God, the creator of the universe, the redeemer of his people, makes no apologies or excuses for who he is or how he acts in the world. May I encourage you to not try to explain the very things that only God has the right to say or do. When someone says, I don't deserve to be talked to like that, to say that there's only one way to heaven. Don't try to make an excuse. Be gentle. Be kind. Laugh with people. Agree with them every chance you get. Say, you know, we believe the same thing about this. It's just that Scripture teaches a little more specifically, a little more directly about how we come uh, to, to be in good standing with Him. And it's through Jesus and what He did on the cross Not even by imitating Jesus, although believers are called to imitate Jesus. Uh, There is no other God. And besides Jesus, there is no other Savior. 
When you start saying, okay, all right, maybe that's, look, maybe this particular doctrine's not that big a deal so that others will find the gospel more palatable, you're going down a road from which there is no return. You're going to be a long way from Jesus. You're going to be a long way from the truth of Scripture. You will not be an effective witness if you seek to water down the truth. So let me encourage you to be confident in your beliefs that you know from Scripture and because God has called you into His family. If you have been called to be a child of God, then you can have full confidence in your Creator, in Redeemer. And if He is this God that He says He is, don't worry about what people think. Of course, again, be patient, be gentle. I'm, none of that is, I'm not saying just brashly walk all over people. But have confidence in the God you worship and the Savior you proclaim. You have been called to know and believe and understand that He is the only God. And to be a witness of His great works, including the redemption with which He has blessed you. And that He offers to the world is a great privilege. You will be blessed as you share this news with the world that is desperate for stability in ever-changing times and in times when civil discourse is less and less, maybe hopes that that's changing a little bit, but who knows. But we have something that nobody else has, and we get to offer it to the world. God calls us into his family, and then he offers this good news to all who will believe. Let's pray. Father, um, we acknowledge that you are a good God. And that's easier for some of us than others right now, frankly. There are a lot of things that happen to us that challenge that belief. So we pray that as... We come to your word and we read these things that you assert about yourself to be true, that we will believe them to be true. And as your children, that we will see the great blessing of your love and care. And to know that in Christ, all of our sins are forgiven. And when we fail, and we, even when we are disciplined, you're right there beside us. You're standing strong with your children. We love you imperfectly, yes. But we long for the day when we will love you perfectly. Because you will cause it to be. You will have made us the joint heirs with Jesus Christ. The blessings that you have for us. Cause us to be faithful and effective witnesses as we share this good news about life in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies. 
or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.